Leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Welcome to Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath, where experienced leaders share their own brand of leadership to help you develop and improve your own leadership capabilities. And now, here's your host, Dr. Gary. Hello again, I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. And welcome again to Leading from the Front, where leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Today's guest is a business alignment strategist and speaker. She's the CEO of Superstar Activator and host of the Awaken Your Inner Superstar podcast. She works with influencers, thought leaders, and other superstar entrepreneurs to grow their businesses and monetize their expertise in joyful, energy-rich ways. I just, I love that joyful, energy-rich ways. I love that comment. Michelle holds an undergraduate degree in psychology modified with mathematics, otherwise known as statistics, an MBA in international business, and recently received her certified speaking professional certification, which is the highest earned designation of the National Speakers Association, which I am also a a CSP, so one of my fellow CSP speakers. I love it. She's also a member of the Million Dollar Speakers Group. Please welcome today, Michelle Villalobos. Michelle, welcome to the program today. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Gary. It's really exciting to be here. I'm excited to hear about, first of all, your your path. You mentioned earlier that having grown up, I guess, in Cuba and Dominican Republic and come to the United States, how, how did you start your entrepreneurial venture in this whole world of the superstar activator? Yeah. Well, so my background, and I think it's it's kind of relevant. My parents are Cuban, so they're Cuban immigrants, exiles. My dad hmm. is an exile. My mom, not quite so much. And then I grew up in the Dominican Republic. But my my story from very young age was, you know, keep it safe. Don't take any risks. My dad and my mom already took all the risks we need to take. Why don't you just, you know, get, go to a good school, get a good job, make good money. Don't rock the boat too much, Michelle. That was kind of the the message growing up. Uh And of course my nature is very not like that. So my story is, you know, that I had to overcome a lot of programming in order to even dream about being an entrepreneur, much less actually do it. What ended up happening was I did the thing that I'm supposed to do. I got the job. I, you know, went to the Ivy League school. I got the straight A's. I got the MBA. I got the corporate job. I did really well. I made good money and I was miserable and exhausted. So what was that first job that you had coming out of getting your MBA? So what happened with my MBA was interesting. I worked at a magazine at the time And when I got the MBA, because I did it executive style, I got the program while I was working, I got the Mm -hmm. MBA. And so when I finally got the program, I went basically, long story short, in a nutshell, basically told my current boss, like, listen, I got to leave because now I need to get a job that's worthy of this MBA that I have. I just invested $70,000, $80,000 in my education. I can't keep being an editorial assistant anymore. That was, I was working in a magazine and he said, well, it just so happens that your magazine is going to go under because it doesn't make enough money. Why don't you put your MBA to use over here? Why don't I give you a, a new job leading the magazine and see if you can turn it around? Wow. So it was a very entrepreneurial venture inside of a corporate environment. I did it and it was difficult and it was hard. You know, I basically spent three years turning that magazine around, making it profitable, blood, sweat, and tears, 
And then I, I got to a point where I was just so tired and exhausted that I, I couldn't keep going and I quit. So let's back up for a second. During those three years, what are some of the things that you remember the most, other than being tired and exhausted, that you remember the most about that three-year experience? This first real executive yeah. leadership opportunity for you to and, and to turn a magazine around and make a profit. That's awesome. What did you learn from that? What, what do you remember? Oh, gosh. What do I remember? Well, first of all, I have to give you kind of a little bit of context. This is the magazine industry, or at least the one that I was working in, is not a very... It's, it is a very dysfunctional environment. And the one that I was in, I think, was especially so. So we were in a, you know, we worked at a company where the owner was just really numbers focused and, you know, kind of a place where you, people would do anything to make a book. And there was a lot of backstabbing, a lot of gossiping, a lot of drama. There was yelling and screaming at the office, you know, on a regular basis. And so when he gave me the promotion, there were people that were very unhappy about this. Not only did he give me a promotion, he decided to give me a corner office overlooking Ocean Drive, which was like the like a primo office. And people wanted that office. There were people camped out in there, kind of like squatters rights. And so I came into a pretty hostile environment. And mm -hmm. that's the environment that I had to engender loyalty and trust. And because I was basically competing for salespeople. So the way it was it was structured is there was an English language magazine and then there was mine, which was the Spanish language redheaded stepchild magazine. Yeah. And we shared salespeople. And I, except for one or two salespeople that were my own, I had this whole team of 15 salespeople that I could tap into if I could convince them to sell my book. Mm -hmm. And that's what I spent three years trying to do was influence and lead people into this new opportunity. Why is the Hispanic market valuable? Why should your advertisers bring their dollars over here. You know, so I had to make a lot of arguments and do a lot of research and show, well, like you could be one page out of 400 in the big book, or you could be one page out of 90 in my little book. You know, it's like a lot of yeah. different ways that I tried to make the case for our book. But internally, internally, you had to convince some salespeople to go out and sell because they didn't have to sell for you, right? They didn't report to you. They so that, that required internal leadership. My, so my question for you, we have this concept in our leadership program that we always talk about is the first follower. You got to find somebody that will follow you and then you'll get one or two other people to come along because somebody else yes. did it, but not because you did it, but because the follower did it. Yes. So tell me about your first follower. Susan Abrams. So you still remember her name, right? Yeah, of course. We always do. Like I said, I had my two dedicated salespeople. So they were truly my first followers. But of the English language people that finally decided to sell for my book, she was the number one salesperson over there. And she uh, knew an opportunity when she smelled one. And she had clients like, you know, all the, I'm going to name names that I don't know if these were the exact clients, but she had like the Jimmy Choo's and the Chanel's and the Prada's and she had those brands and she had a lot of influence with those brands. And she, the moment she told them you should invest in this book, we started to get those out of her. How did you convince her? Was it just because she was, uh, she's one of these typical entrepreneurial salespeople would look at any, yeah. any way to any opportunity to make a sale? I think so. I think it was a little more than that. It was any opportunity to serve her clients. Ah. And I think that what I did was I did find the reasons why this would serve a client. Like I had to, you know, it couldn't be smoke and mirrors. It had to be real. And the fact was that Hispanics were flocking to Miami. They did have a lot of money. They were interested in high-end brands. They did have big purchasing power in Miami. The Hispanic market in Miami 
looks a lot different than the Hispanic market in the rest of the country. But Prada, Mercedes-Benz, Gucci, they didn't know that. They associate Hispanic market, and to some degree, maybe they still do. This was, you know, 13, 15 years ago. They associate it with, you know, migrant grape pickers in Texas. They're not thinking of like the, you know, the Argentine expatriate that brings their millions of dollars out of Buenos Aires and needs a place to, needs a $2 million condo. And a, nice. you know what I mean? Like that's a very different perception versus reality. People have kind of a one-dimensional view of the Hispanic market and the Hispanic market's very diverse. Yeah. So you understood that and you, you took it and made it profitable. But after three years, what you said was you were exhausted and you didn't have anything left in you. So you quit. Well, what happened actually, now that I think about it, I haven't thought about this in a long time, was I was autonomous. I was my, I was leading the charge. Like I made my own meetings and I created my own, you know, publisher's letter. I wrote the publisher's letter at the beginning of every book. And, you know, I had, I basically created this thing, turned around the magazine. And then all of a sudden the owner of the company brought in a new CEO and that new CEO decided I couldn't have my own meetings. He just like, without knowing anything about what I had built or why I'd done it my way, like he wanted to take an event that I created, the golf tournament. We had Andy Garcia come play at our golf tournament. I got Mercedes Benz to sponsor it, Heineken. They were like, oh, we should have a golf tournament. And so they tried to like steal my event, you know? So this yeah. guy comes in and I didn't realize it till later, but his whole job was he was brought in to increase the profit of the magazine on paper so that they could sell it. They were going to sell all the books. I didn't know that that was the agenda. I was like, who is this guy coming in and telling me how to do my job? The moment they sold the mag, I left within six months or a year, they sold all the magazines and they cut ocean drive Espanol right away. It was was done. So then where did this entrepreneur go then, Michelle? What happened next? So actually I left briefly. I, you know, cause I really wanted to not burn that bridge. Mm-hmm. I guess I wanted to go back. I don't know. I just, I wanted to make sure I played nice. So I went to work with one of our clients with one of our advertisers and that lasted all of about two months. And it was, you know, a, this was a situation where again, the owner of the company wouldn't let me do what I needed to do. He mm-hmm. wanted to micromanage me and I'm just not someone at that point who could be micromanaged anymore. You know. So, you know, this is a good thing to talk about because micromanagement that you experience is something that we talk about in leadership all the time. People don't like it. You know, how do we do it? How do we hold them accountable without micromanaging? You know, what does it mean? So talk just a little bit about that experience. If you could describe for people what that felt like, what it was to be micromanaged and what would it be like if you weren't micromanaged? Yeah, well, it looked like, you know, somebody really trying to manage how I did the job not what results I produced. Exactly. Yeah. And tell you how to do the job, right? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I wouldn't do it this way or that'll never work. Or, you know, it was very demoralizing. Whereas, you know, in the magazine, Jerry, the owner of the magazine, he didn't care about Ocean Drive Espanol. He was about to get rid of it. So he was going to toss a bone to me. He didn't give me a raise or anything. He just said, all right, I'll give you three months, see what you can do. You know, and, and all he looked at at the end of the month was revenues. Revenues, revenues. And I was, I could do whatever I wanted. I had no budget, but I could do whatever I wanted, use all the resources at my disposal. That's why I decided to tap into all those salespeople. Nobody had done that before. They tried to make it work with just these two dedicated salespeople, you know, whereas in the new job, then he was like checking in on me every day. He wanted to meet every day. He wanted to talk. He wanted, who was I meeting with? How was, what was I going to offer them? And like, it was just so, it was just, 
you know, it was no fun. <laughs> I think you summed, summed it all up. It was just, uh, that about does it. I love your description of micromanagement. We talk about it all the time. It's not just knowing the what and the goal, but when you get micromanaged, it's the how. It's being yeah. told how to do the job. And for a professional, they hate that. Unless they don't know how, right? they hate it. So how did you, let's bring us up to date now. How did you get into your own business? How did you end up as a business alignment specialist? and the work that you do as a superstar activator and all that. What what does all that mean? There have been two phases of my business. Okay. The first phase was the first seven and a half years. So the day that I quit that job and I told that guy, take this job and shove it. And he basically said, well, what are you going to do now? And I said, I'm going to, I'm going to be a consultant and I'm going to do exactly what I, you know, I'm going to give people advice, but I'm not going to be responsible for the implementation of that advice. So you can take my ideas and you can implement them or you could ignore them, but you know, that's it. And he said, well, I'll hire you. So he became my first client. That's a good way to do it. Get yourself fired and, and make them your client. That's no, a, I, I quit. You quit. I'm sorry. I quit. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I sit corrected. Thank you very much. I quit. And then I turned around and pitched him on, on my consulting services, which he took me up on. So my first contract was $14,000 from him. And I was like, whoa, this is easy. I love this. I love being a consultant. And then I think that was the only deal I made that year. The only big deal. It was, it was downhill from there. Yep. I spent the next seven years, seven and a half years building up my consulting, coaching, speaking, training. I call it my anything I could do to make a buck business. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I was constantly hustling, constantly trying to drum up business, delivering business, drum up business, delivering business. And I finally had a breakdown in 2014. I crashed. It was mm-hmm. like, I just couldn't keep up the pace of all that work anymore. I was constant. And in that crash, I met a mentor who taught me about leadership, really, Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, about self-leadership and about operating from a vision, operating from alignment, operating from just a whole different, completely different way of approaching business. And I've spent the last six and a half years now doing it that way. And so right now, what I do is I help other people identify where they're out of alignment and how to get their business into alignment with who they really are, what they really care about, what they love to do. You know, there's these like six different points of the star, you know, the center point and the five points of the star for alignment. And I help people create alignment in those areas. So let's, let's go back and talk a little bit about this mentor. Yeah. Most of us that have had any kind of success in business, mine was uh, Dr. Marshall Swift when in the 90s who saved my butt a few times the first time I had a business and didn't have any money like you were talking about after the first year. I was like, I need some help. And he found me some and and helped mentor me. What do you remember the most about that and how you created this? You're talking about creating the vision, how you did it for yourself and by learning it for yourself, then you can help others. But what yeah. did the mentor do for you? How did he help you or she help you? I don't know if it's a he or she. Mm-hmm. He that helped you create that vision. What was the value in that? Talk a little bit about what that story looked like. You know, it's funny. What what happened was I was introduced to him. We got on a call and he very quickly and expertly sold me on a package. Like I didn't even know what happened and I was out 2,500 bucks. I'm like, Oh my God, I hope that was a good decision. Turned out it was a great decision. He enrolled me in a three day retreat in New York city. I flew up to New York and I entered this dungeony hotel space. It was no mirror, no windows, 10 of us and him. And he basically led us through this three day 
process. But the thing was he opened the three day that I was desperate. Like I needed a shift in my business. And I was like, this doesn't work. I'm going to get a job. And the first thing he says, he opens up the day and he says, I know you all came here to get something. And I want you to put that aside and come here in contribution instead. And I was like, what? You know, like, that's not what I signed up for. I signed up for you to help me fix my business. I came here for some answers, but he made a really good case. Like he told a really good story. And by the end of his whole spiel, I was like, all right, fine. I will be here in contribution this weekend. I'll trust. I'll I'll do what this guy says, you know, and see what happens. Let the chips fall where they may. Well, over the course of the weekend, what happened was over and over and over again, as people were popping and having their breakthroughs, I was there in contribution, bringing my genius, my gifts, which are branding and marketing and messaging and, you know, strategy, creative strategy. Oh, you could do this. And what about that? And like for each person that came along, I'd like help them figure out something. Like there's one that reached out to me recently. He's like, I'll never forget that breakthrough you helped me have in that retreat six years ago. It changed my life. So I got to experience myself in my absolute genius with my absolute magic. And other people got to experience me that way. And that happened for everybody. Everybody had that experience. And by the end of it, I was like, I'm doing the wrong work. Like, why am I doing this implementation accountability coaching and this trainings and call center trainings for diabetes testing facilities. Like I hate this work. (laughs) I love this work. I love working with people like them and coming up with these creative ideas. And then I had to come confront like my belief, which was nobody's going to pay me for that. Mm. And that was like, that was where I needed the, that's when I signed up for his one year program. It was like to help. Cause I could see that if I had someone like him holding me to account, reflecting back to me, like, wait a second, but you just said you hated doing that. Why are you going to create a program around that thing that you just said you hated? Because I was so programmed to just create things and sell things because people needed them, but not the things that I love to do. You know, it's interesting what you just said. Your belief was that you can't make money with your talent, right? That you really discovered in a, in a very visceral way in this experience by contributing. So you've got this, this talent, you contribute and I talk about this all the time in the work that we do with leaders and focusing on strengths yeah. is that it's, it's such a talent and it's so easy. It comes, it just flows that what happens is that wow factor. Why would anybody pay for something that's so easy and simple and not has no value? Right. And the ta- we talk about this all the time, that those things that are easy and valuable and that create remarkable results are there because of the talent, the experience the coaching, the training, all the time that you went through that seven and a half years before, all these other things that you did honed those talents to a level that you didn't even know was there. Exactly. And he drew it out in that week. In that weekend. And so then he he stood up in front of that room of people and he invited everyone to join a one-year coaching program. And seven of the people in the room out of 10, not including me, raised their hand and said they were interested. And this was a $2,500 a month program. Mm -hmm. And I was like, there's no way I can afford that. Like, I want that so badly and there's no way. And to to Jake's credit, to this day, I think, I just talked to him the other day and I thanked him again, like I always do. To Jake's credit, he did not let me off the hook. He showed me what it is to do sales from a place of service. And he stood for me and he's like, I'm not letting you off the hook. He actually flew to California from New York, flew to California to watch me speak 
and to talk to me after I got off the stage and to convince me to sign the contract to work with him, which I did. So why do you think he did that? I think he saw my genius and he saw, he believed in me in a way I didn't believe in. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's what can turn us around is when we have somebody that demonstrates, look, this podcast, leadership is a responsibility, not a position. He had no leadership authority over you. He was a mentor. He was being paid for a service. He didn't have to do those things, but that was his gift. His gift was that he saw the talent and the strengths and the contribution people could make in their lives. And he wouldn't let it go, even though you didn't, even though you were letting it go, he wouldn't let it go. Well, and the thing is, you know, I look back at that moment. I use that as an example a lot with my clients. Like you could look at it as like, he was just so committed to the sale, but I know that wasn't it. He was committed to you. He wasn't committed to the sale because he saw the genius. He saw the talent and he's like, I can't let this go. I can't let this woman walk away because she doesn't think she can make money on it. In fact, I'll take you on. I'll make money for you. You know. (laughs) Well, and that's part of what he did actually come to think of it. You know, he, he said, listen, I believe in you so much because we had, we, by the end of that weekend, we had mapped out a plan and I had a plan to make $300,000 in the next three months, which was the amount that I'd made in the whole prior year. But I had mapped out a formula plan to do it in the next three months. And he said, I'll tell you what, I'll sell for you at your event. Like I'll come to your event. I'll lead your sales team at your, cause I was going to do, I do this big, I used to do this big event called the women's success summit. It's like, mm. when, you know, there were 300 people there. I'd never made an offer like this before. Like I, what I did was that weekend, let me back up. What I saw was if he did this three day event and he got seven people to sign up for $2,500, maybe I could do, I already have a three day event. I have 300 people going. Maybe I can sell some things there, you know? Yeah. So he said, what I'll include in this package is if you sign up for this, I'll come to your event and I will sell for you from the back of the room. And I was like, ding, ding, ding. Okay, we'll do that. So just a little bit of support. And as we say, IGYB, I've got your back. You got got somebody that's got your back and proves to you the value and the genius that you have that you don't even realize yourself. So now you help people do that. That's it. Ding, ding, ding. I Now it's so much easier for me to stand for somebody and say, I see you. I know you can do this. I will give you this. Like, I will support you. I've got your back. You know, I believe in you. And I think that that's gone a long way in helping me now build my business over the last six and a half years since then. Do you do this with a lot with business people? Yes. So do you see their leadership and management capabilities significantly improve after working with you and understanding what they stand for and who they are? Oh my God, Gary. Yes, yes, yes. Why do you think that is? I mean, honestly, because I think everything ultimately is leadership. At the end of the day, it's, it's, it starts with self-leadership, right? Leading yourself, influencing yourself, right? That's, that's literally what we focus on the first year, right? And then it's okay. Once you're the master of you, it's very much more, it's easy to be the master, you not the master of, but it's either easy to influence and lead others from a place of congruent leadership and, and authenticity and alignment. It's different than leading people, as you said earlier, from authority, dominance, mm-hmm. or power, force, I should say, not power, force. Like those, that's old paradigm, military, patriarchal kind of model. And now we're moving more into this more integrated, you know, masculine, feminine integration type of model that's more about inspiration and nurturing and cultivation. And, you know, it's a different kind of leadership that comes from first leadership within and then that naturally expresses. 
Well, as we, we say, it's compassionate accountability. There you go. Yeah. So it's the balance of compassion with accountability. And, and it's not either or. It's a balance of those two in every given situation that there's the opportunity to do both. As parents, we call it tough love. Mm-hmm. So people know what it is, but I love my children enough to be tough on them so that they grow up to be fully functioning and to bring their genius and their talents up. The velvet hammer. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, th- and this is why we're talking your complete alignment. Self-leadership is, you know, we talk about my seven steps of intentional leadership and the first four steps are self-leadership and steps four through seven are team. And the very first step is personal mission statement. It's purpose. It's understanding purpose. And you talk about the division. What... What do you want to be or what do you want people to say about you 20 years from now, 30 years from now? Yeah. And how do I need to show up today in order yeah. to be able to achieve that? Right. Totally. So that's exactly what you do, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It really is. Yeah. It really is. Like in my three day retreat, one of the exercises we do that people both love and resist, interestingly, is a future self exercise where they they step into, they, they, they connect with, they meet their future self and they get information from that future self. And then they come back into the today moment. It's like, Oh, now I, now I'm clear. Now I have a clear vision. And from that vision, even if it's not clear exactly how they did it or what they did, but like the most clear thing is who do I need to be? And from that place of who do I need to be? I need to be someone courageous, someone expressed, someone focused. So, you know, whatever those things are from that place, you know, everything comes much easier. So it's, it's more about like, instead of the exact vision of I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do this. It's more like the vision of who I am. Right. Right. Well, you just, you just made the point and I'll just re- reemphasize it. I'm going to do this, do, do, do. It's not about do, it's about be. And that's why we're human beings, not human doings. We're a human being. We have to be. And to to be, to be balanced and focused and calm, okay, with each other, we need to know know who we are and what we stand for. Because if I know who I am and you attack my character and I can look at you with confidence and realize that, yeah, that's not me. I don't know where you got that from. It's not an attack, it's, it's just, it's just words. Then I can show up as a leader in the, in the way that I want to show up with those around me every single day, regardless of if they're part of my organization or not. Yeah. It's, it's how I treat my dog. It's how I treat my wife. It's how I treat my sons, my grandkids. It's how I show up every day. How am I? Yes. Who am I? Yeah. Yes. Good. So you said you've got a retreat. What are you doing in this these times of COVID to be this uh, superstar activator? How are you maintaining your business and what suggestions do you have for entrepreneurs and, and leaders today? Well, it kind of came, it wasn't super strategic. It sort of happened, but this has been a great year for us. Our retreats are are full. You know, we've had, we've sold out of our, our next retreat almost a month out which is unheard of. We've never had that happen before. And I think it's because I think, and I think everybody can do this, by the way, early on, I don't know where it came to me or if it was a dream, I don't know, but the phrase now more than ever started to come into my awareness all the time, like now more than ever, now more than ever. And I, and I did a call with my clients and I said, this phrase now more than ever is just ringing in my ears all the time. And I want us to think about this. And I want us to ask the que- answer the question now more than ever and answer it with what we do, like with our offerings. Like how, how can we position what we do as more important now than ever? 
And it became so clear to me so quickly. I'm like, now more than ever, people are unwilling to waste their life doing work they hate. Now more than ever, people need to find ways to be more creative about their business. Now more than ever, people are unwilling to waste time with clients they don't enjoy. Like now more than ever is the time to re-envision your business so that it aligns with who you really are and what you really came on this planet to do. Or now more than ever, I want to go to a three-day retreat with Michelle just so I can get some hugs because you know, we, miss, we miss the hugs during the pandemic. Well, and the thing is, let me tell you something, Gary, we went virtual all year. We didn't yeah. do the live three-day retreat. That's not to say I didn't do any live retreats. We did. I'll explain that in a minute. But we, all four of our four quarterly events went virtual. Yeah. And we were able to get these results virtually with people. That's great. You know, and that's because we could answer the question now more than ever. And it wasn't about a format. It wasn't about, oh, we can't meet live. So it's not, it's like now more than ever is the time to do this work. We need to do this. Yeah. So let me, let me ask you my last and final and favorite question that you may know if you may have heard me ask this before, but if you could write yourself a letter and send it back to Michelle, you know, 20 years ago, what would you write to yourself? What would you tell Michelle? I wouldn't have listened. That's the problem. <laughs> okay. Let's pretend that you have the letter and it's sitting in front of you and maybe just possibly on the fourth or fifth or 17th reading, you finally heard yourself in that message. Mm-hmm. What would you, what would you write to yourself? I would have told myself to take better care of myself, Hmm. to, to take care of my body, my vessel, and to not sacrifice my body today for the, in exchange it for some future success. Hmm. You know, I was running on empty 20 years ago. I was drinking heavily smoking. I didn't exercise, no yoga, no meditation. Like None of the things that are such a core part of my life today was I doing back then. And it was because I was like in overdrive Mm -hmm. in my career. Like once I get to the place I want to get in my career, then I'll take care of myself. That was my whole philosophy. Once I graduate with a 4.0 from this MBA and be number one in the class, then I'll work out. Or once I get this next magazine out, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, it was just, it was always on the other side of some impossible, you know, feat. Cause the moment I attained it, there was the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. So the letter would have been about like slowing down, taking care of myself, meditating and taking up yoga. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And again, and to be an effective leader, you have to have that physical and mental stamina yeah. and resilience and if you're beating yourself up, you can't, you don't have that. And you think you're doing it for this great reason, you know, so for some noble reason, I'm going to show people how hard I can work. And, mm-hmm. and what we need to show people is not only that we can work hard when we're working hard, but we also have to take care of ourselves physically, mentally, and spiritually. Uh-huh. And to your point, about the same time I, I got my CSP where we started all this, I'm also a certified meditation instructor at Chopra Global. So wow. we bring meditation into our leadership programs every time we bring meditation, as you do. Yeah. And people don't realize you want to stop the chatter in your head. You have to take control of it. And the only way to do that is meditation. So yeah, maybe we can do a program on meditation someday. We'll just sit here for 30 minutes quietly and do nothing and sell that. (laughs) I think that'd be awesome. Yeah, (laughs) Money ever. It would be. So Michelle, it's been a pleasure having you on the show today and listening to your journey and some of your thoughts and backgrounds, your wisdom. And I think I, I have the name of the podcast. 
the name of the podcast for Michelle is going to be now more than ever. You know, we've got to have that. Absolutely. You said that with such passion. People need to hear this podcast. It's now more than ever. And I just really appreciate taking the time to talk to our, our listeners today. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. Thank you again for listening to Leading from the Front, where leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Thank you and be well. Thanks for being with us on Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about the work Dr. Gary is doing, visit statarius.com, S-T-A-T-A-R-I-U-S.com. Music for Leading from the Front is provided by Peter Katz. For more of his music, visit petercats.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.